0: Dodge Media Productions is a proud sponsor of Expose Hope, a 501c3 organization dedicated to showing the members of the adult entertainment industry that regardless of where they are at, they are cared for. Expose Hope provides gifts, resources, and time to individuals without judgment. Dodge Media Productions is committed to helping Expose Hope to reach their goals of ending trafficking. You can support their efforts by donating today. Follow the link in the show notes.
1: You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so, this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 137, my all time favorite movie of all time. The film, the year was 1990. I was a year out of high school. Mm-hmm. Went with a girlfriend mm-hmm. to see this new actress that I had already previously discovered mm-hmm. in Satisfaction and Mystic Pizza. Mystic
1: Pizza, right?
0: Already had a girl crush on her. Mm-hmm. Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman.
1: Pretty Woman. Mm-hmm. That's right. all you can say. That's all I can say.
0: So we watched this one for free on an Xfinity stream, which was a, little, a bit of a bummer because they they edited out the one of the most oh yes. awesome scenes. So I would right. not... It, so, was, it would have been worth it for us to pay the $4 to see the actual version.
1: But even if you uh, see a real version, you can go on YouTube and see the scene we're talking about where one of my favorite comedians and dear personal friend Larry Miller... Is the uh, manager at the store and it is absolutely wondrous. You're a powerful and sexy man. I knew that the moment you walked in here. Like, uh, it, it was just absolutely wonderful. His performance as the obsequious butt kissing anything for a dollar. Ugh, it was so good. Why did they cut that? I, I just,
0: I have no clue.
1: Someone from FX needs to answer.
0: Yes. So, Gary Marshall, actually, I think. I think Julia Roberts was attached to this film. It was called 3000. It was written by J.F. Lawton, who also did Pizza Man in 91. Do you remember that movie?
1: Uh, It sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't think I saw it. (laughs) I'm not talking about the porn version.
0: (laughs) 92's Under Siege and 95's Hunted and 96 Chain Reaction. He wrote all of those.
1: I definitely saw Under Siege, if that's the one with Steven Seagal that I'm thinking of. yeah, Oh, yeah.
0: So he wrote this film, it was called 3000, and it was very dark. It was more realistic about mm-hmm. the seediness of sex work and and probably Hollywood Boulevard and the activities that, you know, the illegal activities that took place downtown right.
1: LA. So he was probably writing this mid to late 80s. And I think Hollywood Boulevard was a l- little sketchy back then.
0: Yes. So he wrote that and she was attached because she was really a nobody. You know, she had done this little film, Mystic Pizza. Okay, whatever.
1: Right. Wasn't a huge
0: hit. She didn't get a ton of buzz. So she was attached and they couldn't find anybody to direct it. Whoever had it before Disney got it. And Disney was like, okay, Gary, you (laughs) direct this movie. And she was like, I went from having a job to not having a job. But the casting director liked her so much, told Gary, you need to have her play Vivian because she's amazing. Do you want to say something?
1: It, yeah, I just love how that goes. That, that meeting, like, ah, baby doll, we got the script. It's really dark. People die and have heroin and stuff. Who should we have directed? Right. Gary Marshall. Didn't he do the and shortly? <laughs> like, it, <laughs> yeah. it just, it is so tonally different from what we know him for. Yes. <laughs> I find that funny.
0: Yes, we know him from um, TV's Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy. Then he went on to do Overboard in 87, Beaches, and he had just finished Beaches before he did this one. (laughs) And so it it got disney fi. The script totally was changed. In fact, Jason Alexander, I believe, and Julia both told stories of they would kind of do what was on the script. Here's a perfect example. There's a scene where Edward comes in for a meeting and Jason looks down And he starts commenting on his shoes. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that scene? And kind of making fun of Edward for the type of shoes he's wearing. Okay. And so Jason said that Gary, and it's so hilarious because as I was doing research, Jason Alexander, Julia Roberts, and Richard Gere do an amazing Gary Marshall impression that I am not going to do right now because I won't do it.
1: Justice. Oh, I can't do it well at all, but I think everyone wants to. There's something about Gary that just demands you impersonate him. Well, I think you spend
0: time with him, and you can probably do it better. Right. So maybe sure, sure. I should have spent prior to this podcast, instead of watching my reality shows, watching Gary Marshall interviews, and maybe I could have done it. Fair enough. But basically, he calls Jason over, and he says, comment about his shoes. Just kind of play around and comment about his shoes. <laughs> so Jason's like, what? And he goes, yeah, yeah, trust, trust me, trust me. So there was one line of dialogue from the script that Jason delivered. But then the most part, he's just busting his balls about his shoes. And Gary goes, yep, cut, moving on. And and Jason's just like, wait, what about the other lines in the script that we didn't say? And Gary was just like, it's okay, we've got it. And so all of them reported that he would do this. They would. Julia said they would do a funny one, do a serious one, do an angry one. Okay, cut. Moving on. And he was like, when we finished that movie, we were just like, there's no way a movie is going to be made. Right. We didn't get enough stuff.
1: Right. It was just a mismatch. Well, and
0: But Gary had it all in his head. And so I believe it was after the shoe one, Richard Gere said, see, I told you or something like basically he's a genius. Like just listen to what he says and do what he says. Okay. And look, this is like an amazing movie.
1: After having spent three months editing (laughs) that causes me conniptions to think about just wow. I mean, what trust in your entire crew that you could do all these different takes. And then there's one in there that you're going to be able to use to tell the story you need to tell.
0: Yep. So he compiles a cast of Richard Gere, Julia Roberts, Ralph Bellamy, Jason Alexander, Laura San Giacomo, Amy Yazbeck, Hector Elizondo, and your aforementioned Larry Miller. Now, I mentioned Hector. It's so sweet. I believe Gary puts him in every movie. I thought so, yeah. And in this one, the budget didn't warrant, apparently, Hector's salary. And so Gary paid Hector's salary so that he could be in this movie and he paid it out of his own pocket and then eventually Disney relented and repaid Gary the money. Well,
1: it was a good choice. I I think this is a fantastic role for Hector.
0: Yeah. Somebody, I can't remember who it was this morning when I was watching, I believe it was one of the producers said every single person in this film is necessary. There is not one character. He says even the elevator operator is a necessary character for this film to propel it. Like there's no wasted background. You know what I mean? I'm saying like there's no wasted like side carry, supporting cast. The DP was Charles Minsky. He did 86's The Hitcher, 95's Congo, and 2000's Almost Famous. It was filmed in and around all over Los Angeles, the Las Palmas Hotel where Vivian lives, the Regent Beverly Wilshire, where she ends up staying with Edward. Rodeo Drive is a huge character in this, the LA Equestrian Center. And the Opera House is actually in uh, the Natural History Museum. It's not in San Francisco because in 89, there was an earthquake and it blew out all the windows of probably the Davies Hall where they would have gone. On the USC campus, they used the Natural History Museum. The Biltmore Hotel and the W Hotel also were locations for filming. Hmm. The synopsis of this film is a man in a legal but hurtful business needs an escort for some, some social events and hires a beautiful prostitute he meets only to fall in love. Okay. That's a synopsis. That's a synopsis, yeah. yeah. Taglines are, who knew it was so much fun to be a hooker? Ugh. Yeah, that's a bad tagline. <laughs> that is so bad. <laughs> that is so bad. Okay. Uh, or the other one is, she walked off the street into his life and stole his heart.
1: Okay, that's closer to hooker with a heart of gold, but... Mm.
0: Yeah. Why don't you kick us off with a pickup line, and I'm going to give you some more facts and trivia about this film
1: you know what they say it's all about money Mm. it's uh, delivered by some random close-up magician at the party i don't think we see their face no we don't i felt like the voice sounded like ricky j and it could have been it's just a rando but i thought that was actually it conforms to my theory
0: yeah and this movie i so i've heard a couple different thoughts so, right after the 80s, which was all about consumption and Wall Street good. and, yeah, greed, and it's all about what you wear and what you drive and where you live, that's what makes who you are. And so, we see that in Edward's life, that right. that's all those people kind of care about, especially his horrible, quote-unquote, friend, Stucky, right?
1: Yeah. Why? Why do you... Get the penthouse if you're afraid of heights because it's the best, right? Mm
0: -hmm. And we're talking about corporate rating. That's the business that Edward is in. Yeah, horrible. Yeah, exactly. Horrible.
1: Well, and actually you you see that, right? The Bellamy character, it's fairly directly drawn where he's like, I don't care about me. I just care about the people that work for me. And then uh, Philip Stuckey, played by Jason Alexander, who I can now not see George Costanza in the role, but that's not important right now. And he says, oh, yeah, don't worry about him. And just the way he says it, you're like, "Yeah, you're going to lay him all off tomorrow, right? You just know that that's that's kind of... And I don't know if it's realistic, Edward's kind of face turn where he suddenly decides he's going to be a good guy. But boy, the audience, we bought it, right? We wanted the super rich corporate raider Carl Icahn to find a heart somewhere. It's like the Grinch, mm-hmm. right? You want him to find the heart.
0: And when, when we first meet Edward and he's trying to explain to Vivian what he does for a living, it he very much makes it sound almost... I don't know, like playing Legos or something. It's just like, right, well, yeah, I just buy these parts and then I take them apart and then I and then I sell off the parts. And like he's so very matter of fact that these corporations, he's devoid himself of the idea that that these are people and lives and right. incomes that and, you're dealing with.
1: And I love Vivian's like, so you don't make anything, you, you don't do anything, you don't create anything, no. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, a good point. Versus her profession,
0: which in this film, I'm going to say, in this film, not in reality. Right. But in the bounds of this film, hers is, you could say, that very first night, she brings him comfort. She brings him entertainment. She brings him joy. And I'm talking about when they were just having like the carpet picnic.
1: Right. So, yeah, I I want to be clear that I don't believe that it is impossible for a sex worker to be a healthy human being doing like just a job for money. I think here in the United States, that's more difficult than some places. And certainly working on Hollywood Boulevard, I think most of those people probably have a lot of other traumas and things that that don't really sustain that. But for the purposes of the film, right, by the premise, by the bit, Yes, she is serving the escort role. And by that, I don't mean euphemistically for sex worker. I mean, she was fulfilling that role of being someone who would, yeah, give him uh, a companion and also, uh, you know, a certain, I guess you would say maybe appearance or it, it checked the boxes for certain kinds of events. It would look weird, I guess, maybe to some people if he wasn't there with someone on his arm. And uh, so, you know, yeah, it's it's tough for me. And it has been since I first saw this film that I like her character and the role her character plays, but I don't know how realistic that is for people in that industry in the United States right now.
0: And they try to show us some of the realism because the opening scene, I think before we even meet Vivian, we see that I can't remember if, but a woman either jumps or is killed or... Basically, we know we're passing by a body because in all the times I've watched this film.
1: Yeah, we never noticed this. This is amazing.
0: (laughs) I never discovered that the detective is Hank Azaria. Yes. And I always saw the, you know, the lady that's taking a picture as if it's part of, you know, just kind of what you see in LA and she's a tourist and and right. he goes, Where are you from? The LA Times. And she goes, No, we're from the Orlando. <laughs> and that's Hank Azaria. I never ever. And this is. And I, th- I love Hank Azaria.
1: I think this might be pre Simpsons, even.
0: Yeah, I bet this was very. Because he was all. I mean, he is credited, but. Yeah, oh, he's
1: credited. But
0: never like. And the film with Hank Azaria. Right. Like, he's never,
1: but <laughs> you're right. Uh, you have watched this many more times than I have, but I've seen this film many times myself, and I never once recognized him. Isn't no. that amazing?
0: So we do see that that Skinny Marie died, and then Kit uses their rent money to go buy drugs. So mm-hmm. we, they they verge on the on the edge or the bubble of the right. negative side of it,
1: right? And I I think there's a you know a recurring narrative plotline about how Edward is perhaps more of a prostitute than she is in that. He's only doing it for the money. He's not doing it for the love. Although I think prior to meeting him, she was not particularly in love with any of the people she took money from. Right. But that's not important right now. So it is, in that sense, it's problematic because I do like the film, but I worry that it maybe glamorizes something that's pretty tough lifestyle. That's not glamorous Yeah.
0: So a couple of little notes about acting and casting. Julia Roberts and Richard Gere were 18 years apart. They were 40 and 22 at the time of the filming. Actually, I know Julia was actually 20 because Gary in between scenes brought out a cake and she turned, or maybe she was 21 and she turned 22.
1: That's maybe what it was. That's why it sells one of our favorite lines in this film. He's not really my uncle. They never are, dear.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I love that line. (laughs) So here's a little bit of a total full circle that is pretty hilarious, I okay, think, all right, for you and I yeah. and this film. Okay. So Gary Marshall reunited with Julia Roberts, Richard Gere, and Hector Elizondo and Larry Miller, your <gasps> favorite, in Runaway Bride, which included Joan Cusack, <gasps> who you said famously on our after our first date that i maybe looked at and i took great offense because in my mind i was thinking 16 candles joan not today's joan
1: right right
0: and she uh, amongst many actresses were were considered for the role of vivian oh wow isn't that like a crazy like full circle moment right
1: and it's also interesting because speaking of kind of for full, full circle or those connections Larry Miller was considered for the role of George Costanza before Jason Alexander was cast.
0: Right. And Jason almost didn't make it getting cast in this movie because Gary didn't want him in it. He didn't see, he knew about the fight that was going to need to happen at the end. Right. And he said, not my words. These are Gary Marshall's words. He, yeah, so sorry, take him. sorry,
1: Mr. Alexander that we're just reporting.
0: Oh no, this Jason knows this story. I'm apologizing because it's an offensive um, uh, Gary said it would seem that Edward was beating up a midget during their fight scene. Oh, so he didn't like the, Gary. The, yeah, the the height disparity. So the casting director put Alexander on a pile of phone books and then when they were in similar shots, obviously probably Apple boxes. So.
1: Right, that's fascinating. I wouldn't have considered Jason Alexander short per se, but I mean, shorter than Jerry Seinfeld, but Jerry, isn't Jerry a six footer? I think so. Yeah. Anyway. So I'm sorry, Mr. Alexander. Apparently he, you're shorter than everybody. Maybe it, he spends this, a lot of time on Apple boxes. I don't know. This is a really
0: tough role for Jason because, because his oh, character, yeah. you know, accosts uh, Vivian. He said women walked up, <sighs> women have stared at him like, like, you know, daggers. Hatred. Yeah. Uh, Women have said, I don't like you. He said one woman walked up to him in the airport and hit him. And then um, he's been spat on. Oh, I know. It's like people. It's just a rule. It's just a role.
1: It wasn't like he said, I hit women in my spare time. So I'm qualified for this role. He's just an actor.
0: Right. I loved this Gary Marshall story. Richard Gere started off. Acting and he was being a little bit more active in his role, like I think gesturing and stuff. And Gary took him aside and said, No, 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 Richard, in this movie, one of you moves and one of you doesn't. Guess which one you are. (laughs) That sounds like a Gary line. I know, but not at all with like a a New York accent. Right, but I I, I love that.
1: Guess which one you are. I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I really, he sounds. This was Ralph Bellamy's final film before he oh. went on to the, the Great Beyond. Uh, the uh, Green Room in the Sky. He died in
1: ninety one at the age of eighty seven, which is, I think, again a little bit of a movie connection because this could be considered a romantic comedy by my many. Oh, and uh, yeah, Ralph Bellamy is famous for. Uh, originating the role of the Bellamy in romantic comedies.
0: What a beautiful bookend.
1: Yes, to his career. I wonder if he saw that irony.
0: No, this is definitely a romantic comedy. I mean, not only yeah. is it labeled as much, but that's... Well,
1: his love for her transforms him. Uh, male and female gazes. I don't...
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He...
1: He gazes at her when she's in the bar in the black cocktail dress. When does she gaze at
0: him? Um, I think it could it be uh, after they've had sex. And she, he's asleep, and she's looking at him.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: I think that's when she starts. Nope, to that's fall perfect. Up.
1: That is a perfect, yeah, assessment. Good job.
0: So I thought for cinematography, you would enjoy this little tidbit. Tell me. The night scenes were all shot practically, mostly. Oh wow. So there was so much lighting. Uh-huh. He just, Gary said they couldn't shut down. They didn't have the budget oh, geez, to shut no. down. What's the name of that? Wilshire Boulevard?
1: Yeah. No. Uh, I don't know where they shot Hollywood, Wilshire? Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Like
0: where, like where's Do you I Don't know? know off the top of your head. So there was enough lights there. Plus, there's just so much activity and so many people, and they couldn't shut down. So they would add minimal lighting for the stars, you know, nearby. Yeah. yeah. But then it was it was like kind of very run and gun in a way. Yeah, it sounds. So like I it. wonder how many people like if you looked in the background, right? Like are really not background, but like They're paid background, pointing. but just extras, like you know people who happen to be there. And then when they shot the scenes on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, right? You can because those stores they can't take a day off because they make so much money. Sure. And so a lot of those stores are closed on Sunday. And Mm. so they shot all those scenes on Sunday when you are allowed to get a permit. But basically no permits are issued for Rodeo drive Monday through Saturday.
1: Fascinating. Uh, Speaking of the cinematography in Hollywood, I noticed that kind of the opening shot was aerial shots of Hollywood And this was before drones, So that was a helicopter shot.
0: Yes, it was. In fact, Gary talked about this because he is the one with the fear of heights. And so he gave that to Richard's character. And so for that helicopter shot, his son, um, Uh, and his son did one. Oh, I think the equestrian scenes, his son was basically the second unit director.
1: Is Gary also afraid of horses? I don't know. Yeah.
0: I can't remember why, but I remember him saying that his son did the yeah. equestrian. Uh,
1: he was tired. He just sent the boy out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I liked how she expressed her car knowledge to him.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> and then, you know, and so he lets her drive and she's explaining how the
1: the pedals. We, we, we can talk about that now or later. Your choice. Okay.
0: We can talk about that later. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no. Is there anything else while I'm looking at my writing notes that you liked since I've been doing a lot of talking?
1: This time around, I, I noticed a little bit more about plotting and the exposition. So eight minutes into the film, we, we get the, it establishes her motive of why she needs cash so badly. I didn't remember that from previous viewings. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, she she's at her day job, so she needs to get money. But she actually needs a lot of money. Because the rent is due and Kit DeLuca, who is an addict, has spent their money on, on drugs. Also, there's a line there where Philip Stuckey at the party in the opening dialogue tells us basically what's going to go on. He's probably somewhere charming a very pretty lady. So that is a clever line of dialogue delivered before we even see Richard Gere's character that establishes that he's going to charm a very pretty lady. Throughout the remainder of the film, but I, I have to say, there's a thing that just got to me: there, the polo match and there's Dixieland jazz playing. <laughs> that, that, that stuck out like a sore thumb to me. I do not believe rich upper crust polo people in Los Angeles would listen to Dixieland jazz. I think a string quartet, maybe. Oh, okay. Not even mariachi band, but Dixieland jazz. Wow, uh, it just it it it, it struck me. Interesting.
0: I, I have no notes about that to, to help you out with that. Okay. <laughs> I thought there were times, cause a lot of people take issue. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. I have heard criticism of this film because of a, it being about sex work and, and kind of like his power dynamic. But I also, I never noticed the many mentions of kind of him putting her in her place or reminding the audience or, or her of her station life. So early on, he comments on the safety pin holding her boot up. He asks how much she makes and the idea of kind of the, that it's a transactional, you know, which it is. Right. It is, but bringing up the money he mentions that his first car is a limo and then he gets a penthouse because it's the best. So we're it's like, he lives this life of consumption. And even though he would be more comfortable on a lower floor, he gets the penthouse because it's the best and it's the most, what's the word I'm looking for? Like prestigious uh, ostentatious kind of. Okay. And then she says, I slept so good. I forgot where I was when I woke up. And he says, Oh, occupational hazard. So it's like he's constantly reminding her of what she does. And I never really noticed that. I thought they were just kind of funny lines instead of...
1: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure I completely agree with that take on it. I I would say there is definitely parts where he is teasing with some of, of these lines at some point near the end. But more importantly... That's how he deals with everyone. Like, I mean, that's the whole point of his character. It, his, his journey is going from that money is everything transactional. He sees a company as, oh, well, if I cut it apart, it's worth more money. So he doesn't see it having any intrinsic right. value of its that's own. That's what
0: I'm saying. Everything is a, a transaction to him.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is true for most of the film.
0: And then, and you're right. He is very charming. I think that's why Gary approached him and went to him. Like there's the scene where he says, or she says, you're late. And he quips, you're stunning. And she says, you're forgiven. And it's just sweet. Like you said, the banter. Yeah. That
1: reminded me a little bit of it happened one night with the speed, the pacing of how they deliver the dialogue. mm Mm-hmm. It was interesting, kind of related to the transactional part, but getting back to that great line, guess which one you are. Gear as an actor, I know his face does show emotion, but in this film, he is very still. Mm-hmm. Not just his body, but his face, and emotionless. So I think that all kind of, to me, it it, he, it was a great acting choice, I think, because it's of a piece, it, he seems like that heartless character.
0: Well, and... and Yes. And I just saw in my notes later on in the film. And I think, I think this is after like they take the bath together. And so they have sex. And I think that's the first time that they kiss on the lips, which was in, it was a boundary that she set because into her that felt more intimate and right. And so he says, you and I are similar. We both screw people for money. And once again, that was just another time where I felt like he was kind of like reminding the audience and her of who she is and comparing it to kind of like who he is.
1: Well, in that case, he's very directly saying they're the same.
0: But, and you brought up that he's cold. And if he was raised like, let's say by governesses or whatever, and he was driving in limos. So like his mom's not driving him to school. The limo driver is, I think people... Tend to, I guess, when you don't have like those touchy feely people around you coming up, they're basically employees raising you. Sure. You probably do lack that emotional connection with human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And you do view everything as like, oh, you're just my employee, you know, my parents' employee or whatever. So there's a lot of opportunity for us to talk about costumes in this. The necklace that she wears when they go to the opera really cost. It was real, and it was valued at $250,000. And so while they were filming, a security man from the jewelry store, equipped with a gun, was standing directly behind the director the whole time that scene was going on. Mm. The red coat that Vivian wears was bought for $30 from a movie usher in the street shortly before filming. (laughs) That's so funny because you just think of these, you know, like we've watched all these BTS and different things. And the costume designers are pouring over and we see drawings and all this right. stuff. And then to find out that, oh, we need her to be a little more covered. Run right. in that movie theater and go buy the, right. the coat off the usher.
1: <laughs> that guy looks good. Get, get his coat.
0: And then the off the shoulder gown that was a, that she wore while she went to the opera was originally supposed to be black. But the costume designer, Marilyn Vance, thought it was too boring and so made it red, which I think was a good call.
1: Yeah, because her hair. That's when we first see her r- red wavy hair is with that dress. Because before then she had that Carol Channing wig on.
0: Right. And when he sees the wig, it's like, I th- i felt like he looked at it and she's laying in bed and her hair is like tousled. Yes. And he, I felt like, I mean, I think we realize she looks better.
1: Yeah, that shot is but, classic no. Hollywood gorgeous leading lady like soft lighting oh my gosh it's just like she was very kind to the cinematographer apparently but that was a great shot
0: so anything else in costuming that you took note of
1: well um also that the the black dress i mentioned the the cocktail dress and it looked like it had a little bit of of a choker part to it but i thought that i don't know if this was but was that a callback because of the necktie at one point she helped him with his tie and then at another point, she's wearing nothing but a necktie, waka waka. So I didn't know if that was, again, bringing that back. I noticed that Edward always wears a waistcoat, so he would be a three-piece suit guy. And I don't follow fashion that well. In 90, would that be considered like a little stuffy, too conservative, like an old person? Or would that be considered a power move? I don't know. And my last thing was, at the end of the film... Her last day at the Ridge Bev Will, um, she has this wondrous terracotta uh, kind of short pantsuit thing going on. And the shoulder pads on that were gorgeous. <laughs> awesome work, costume department.
0: As far as sets go, it was great to see Hollywood Boulevard and the Tower Records because it's very iconic of L.A., and I mentioned before that the opera took place in LA, not San Francisco. And it was La Trav- Traviata mm-hmm. about a prostitute who, involves, who falls in love with a married man. Wow, that's,
1: that. if I knew opera, there would have been an additional layer of, of interest there. But I don't know opera. And in there, he says, like you either love it or hate it the first time you hear it. And I would love to love opera. But watching it this time, I thought I would fall asleep. <laughs> Sorry. But amazing performances vocally from the opera singers. That's not, no reflection on their talent.
0: And I have lots of uh, notes for sound. So I told you as we were watching it that Richard Gere is actually playing the piano when she comes downstairs and you see him in the ballroom. And it's a piece that he composed. And you asked about the piano keys. And according to the director's commentary, the piano key sounds that are made during the lovemaking scene on the piano had to be dubbed in because the actual keys that were randomly hit by Julia and Richard made the scene sound like such a discords Oh, okay. Discordant sound that it was unable, unusable in the
1: actual movie. Okay. I can see that.
0: One of the, f- One of several films in the 90s and the 80s that were after a famous song played over the end credits like Stand By Me, Stand and Deliver, Lean on Me, My Girl, and There Goes My Baby were all in the late 80s, early 90s. Right. And then Pretty Woman. Because this one, originally they wanted the Van Halen version. I didn't know that they Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. David Lee Roth era. He did a Pretty Woman.
0: This same... Same
1: song. Okay. They covered the Roy Orbison song.
0: So they wanted the Van Halen version, but couldn't get it for copyright. And so then they used the Roy Orbison song. And this, this movie has a great soundtrack. I love Roxette. It Must Have Been Love. King of Wishful Thinking by Go West. Show Me Your Soul by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Wild Women Do by Natalie Cole. I mean, it's just No Explanation by Peter Cetera. Like big 80s... Acts.
1: Yeah, I think this uh, soundtrack was popular.
0: Yeah. All right, any head trauma in this film? <laughs> Well,
1: there's two famous bits of head trauma. Uh, Phil slaps v- Vivian upside the head in the penthouse, and then it, right after that, Edward punches Phil in the face.
0: So apparently in their tussle, Richard Gere got hurt, because if you notice, he moves his tongue around the inside of his mouth right after him and Stucky go to blows, and apparently... He knocked a crown off the molar during that scene.
1: Right. So apparently Jason might be short, but he's got a good right hook. <laughs> he does.
0: <laughs> and then um, lots of smoochies between Edward and Vivian.
1: Smoochie,
0: mm-hmm. smoochie, smoochie.
1: Yeah, um, lots of smoochies. Uh, in particular, what I think is noteworthy is she first kisses him on the lips while he is sleeping. After he takes a day off for the first time in forever. And then, of course, the last smoochie when they're on the fire escape is noteworthy.
0: I love it. It's one of my very favorite lines of all films. He says, what happens when he climbed up into the tower and rescued her? And she says, she rescued him right back.
1: Yeah, it's a good line. I love it. I don't think that was in the original dark script, though.
0: No, I, no, the ending in the the first script was... He, she says she loves him. He says he doesn't love her. And he takes her back and drops her off, gives her the money. She's so hurt. She throws the money back in his face. He slaps her, kicks her out of the car. So she's dejected and broke again. And she goes up to her apartment where Kit is ODing.
1: Right. Happy <sighs> Disney film.
0: Thank you, Gary Marshall.
1: Yeah. He, he turned it around for oh us.
0: My gosh, I'm so grateful. All right, how about a driving review?
1: Okay, so um, that Silver 89 Lotus Esprit shows that Philip has both money and taste. If he just had money, he would have had some other car. But uh, Lotus, he's obviously got taste. Okay, so I have- I can
0: explain that.
1: Uh, okay, explain away.
0: Filming commenced in 89, but was immediately plagued by countless problems including issues with space and time. This included Ferrari and Porsche, who had declined the product placement opportunity of the car Edward drove. Because of this, they did not want to be associated with soliciting prostitutes. Lotus Cars UK saw the placement value with such a major feature film. This paid. This gamble paid off. Esprit sales tripled between 90 and 91, and the company supplied a silver... 1989.5 Esprit SE, which was later sold.
1: Yeah. So that's that. That's like a, a legit sports car. It's not necessarily for just a, a rich guy. But it could have been a Ferrari or a Porsche. Could have been. They lost their chance. But here's the problem. So there's a recurring bet that he's not so good with a manual. Okay. The Lotus is not a consumer car. Its clutch is going to have a really stiff bite. If he Is it an H? It is an H pattern, as she mentions. Although, strictly speaking, an H pattern could be first top left, could be first bottom left. So that, that doesn't tell a whole lot. But he wouldn't have been able to drive it at all, or he would have been able to drive it perfectly. I mean, there's no in-between. That car is way, way too much of a sports car for somebody who doesn't know and with the noises they were uh, mentioning training gears yeah it doesn't have a synchro mesh transmission he would not have been able to get anywhere if he couldn't drive it properly now once she gets in there mad props cuz Vivian does not short shift which is awesome so uh, credit to her i I'll give her that is good car and and uh, she actually drives it well or whoever they put behind the wheel i don't know if that's was Julia if it was uh, very impressive There's a shot there on when they go shopping on Rodeo Drive at first. And the car that they show driving through is a black 87 BMW 325i convertible. I don't think that would be impressive back then on Rodeo Drive. Not that it wasn't a nice car, but I just don't think that would be impressive. People of conspicuous consumption, that's more like the car you buy your daughter to go to college in. It it wasn't that. That was a deal. I thought... of all the cars that you see in the background later, that was an odd shot for them to pick to say this was an expensive place. Blah. But I thought it was very interesting because the hotel, the Ridge Bevill, drives them around in a silver 84 Cadillac Fleetwood limousine. But earlier on, she mentions that she grew up around a lot of American muscle. So I thought that was a nice callback, a, a big GM vehicle. And for the people who lived through the late 80s, you'll notice Yeah, through the rear window, that winged cell phone antenna that was common for a few years there. And I remember people would buy just the antenna and mount it on their car. They had no cell phone, but they would mount it because it looked cool.
0: Because, yeah, it was important to look rich, right?
1: Yeah, back in the 80s it
0: was. So it's interesting you bring up that silver limo because you mentioned after we watched this that you thought you remembered... A continuity issue with the limo, yeah
1: at the very end,
0: and it makes sense because I told you as they were making this, Gary was making all kinds of decisions and changes, and so I think early on in the film, Silver was fine, but he realized that the ending that was written in the script wasn't a good ending, and he he realized he was making a fable, and if he was making a fable, it needed to have a fairy tale ending.
1: And she mentions, I think, in dialogue, a white horse.
0: Yes. It's a a dream, I believe, or a fantasy that she had when she was a kid, that the guy rides up on a white horse. And so he realized, I need Edward to ride up on a white horse. How can I do this in L.A.? And so it was the white limo. It's just unexplained why Gordon, Gordon?
1: Yeah, the limo driver. The limo driver
0: drove the silver limo through the whole movie, but then, you know... And so I feel like you could even say you wouldn't have to explain it, but Edward's so rich, he could just, he remembers the story. And so he's like, Gordon, do you have access to a white limo? Or get me a white limo. Like that, he could, he has the funds to do that.
1: Well, sure. And and, and if you have that service, you generally have more than one. Yeah. In case there's a mechanical failure. That part didn't specifically bump me. Because I think, yeah, it, it there are many reasons that he could have a second limo. Mm-hmm.
0: And then um, apparently when Jason Alexander slams the door to his car, I'm imagining that's probably at the beginning when Edward's getting into it, when he's taking his car. Yeah, it must have been. It actually broke the window. Oh, and yeah. And so they had to replace it on that Lotus Esprit. Yeah. And here's one for you, sir. Have you ever heard of the Beverly Hills Speedway? No. I thought you would love this. This is why I do my research so I can find these little tidbits for you. It also used to be called the Los Angeles Speedway. It was a 1.25 mile wooden board track for automobile racing in Beverly Hills, California. It was built in 1919 on 275 acres of land that includes the site of today's Beverly Wilshire Hotel.
1: That's Awesome, they should rebuild it around the Beverly Wilshire.
0: <laughs> and the former site is is bounded by the by Wilshire Boulevard, South Beverly Drive, Olympic Boulevard, and Land- Lasky? Lasky Drive. The project was finan- financed by a group of racers and businessmen that called itself the Beverly Hills Speedway Association. The track was f- the first in the United States to be designated with banked, incorporating an engineering solution known as a spiral easement.
1: It was wooden in 19, you say 19?
0: 1919.
1: Yeah, speeds weren't terribly high, but I think it's a hoot.
0: I thought you would love that. Um, That's thanks to Gary Marshall. He gave me that tidbit, and then I looked it up and just read that paragraph from Wikipedia. Fun fact. Love it. Okay, so we go to the numbers.
1: Let's go to the numbers.
0: Before we do that, I'm going to say uh for people who enjoy these adjusted for inflation, the offer of three thousand dollars would be six thousand five hundred twelve dollars and seventy eight cents in July of nineteen of uh 2021 and Vivian would earn just over a thousand dollars a day for the six days of work
1: that seems like a decent wage for that that individual
0: right. This film is the fourth highest grossing film of the year in the United States and Canada and the third highest grossing worldwide. It had a budget of $14 million. The domestic take in the day was $178.4 million. Worldwide, it got four thirty-two point five. million. And adjusted for inflation today, the domestic would be $387.6 million. So kudos to those producers. I hope
1: Gary got points.
0: Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's why he kept working with Richard and Julia on Runaway Bride. And then I don't know if he was in Valentine's Day, but he worked with Julia again on Valentine's Mm -hmm. Day. It got it. It gets a 7.1 out of 10 from IMDb. Critics not as fond as I am of this film at 64%, and audiences actually not much more, 68. So, I know I'm I'm in the um, minority. But I this, would
1: dispute that. I think most people I know like this film. I thought so too, but I
0: I have to recuse myself because I. I have such... I mean, I remember the theater. I remember walking in. Like, I was so excited to see this movie.
1: I'll be honest. I probably saw it for the first time on VHS.
0: That's fair. No uh, no shade to you. Okay. Um, it's just under two hours at one fifty nine. It's rated R. It is a rom-com. It's a Touchstone Pictures. Julie was nominated for an Oscar, which is rare for a romantic comedy, for Best Actress. And not only did she get BAFTA noms, but so did Costume Design, and it got a nom for best film and best screenplay. It won the Golden Globe. Julia took home the Golden Globe for um, the film. And it was nominated for best picture. Richard Gere and Hector were also nominated as best actor in supporting. It won a People's Choice Awards that year for favorite comedy motion picture. Julia also won the Golden Screen Award and the Jupiter Award her best international actress. So it got some kudos. We are kicking off this month with this theme. Write in and tell us what you think. We are also going to highlight a local charity that helps sex-trafficked individuals as we speak of such films this month. So turn in your guests and then listen in and look in the show notes for how to contribute to expose hope. But never forget.
1: Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.